Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, we never outgrow the lyrics to that song. We never get to a point when we can say we don't need you anymore, that we've become good enough on our own, that we've mastered living this life, that we're no longer sinners. Lord, it is the anthem to our life that we need you every day. And we have confidence and we can know that each and every day you will be there for us. Each and every day you'll give us the grace that we need. Each and every day we can run to you and be accepted regardless of what we've done because you don't accept us because of our life. You accept us because of Christ's life. Father, thank you that we can rest and sit in that hope. Father, I pray now as we look at your word, as we once again turn our attention towards the story of redemption, as we are reminded what you have done in us and what you are doing through us, just help us to rest once again in the truth of the gospel. In your name, amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to John chapter 1. We are continuing in our study of the gospel of John. So many situations in our life are marked by waiting and anticipation. As, as the saying goes that we have to teach our kids often or maybe it's just me, good things come to those who wait. We're, we have to, so many times we have to wait for these things. And when we're in those moments of waiting and anticipation, time seems to go by a little slower. I'm talking about those moments when we're at a restaurant and we've ordered our food and we're hungry, we're starving, and it takes forever for the waiter to finally bring you your meal. Or maybe it's kids waiting for summer or winter break and the semester is just dragging on and on and they're just waiting for that moment they can get out of school. Or maybe it's the parent in the middle of summer and winter break just waiting for them to go back to school. Maybe it's for the job application that's going through. Have I received the position? Maybe it's the college applications. Am I going to go to the right school? Maybe it's the job promotion. Am I going to get what I want? Maybe it's waiting for your significant other to finally pop the question. Maybe it's waiting the, for those long nine months of pregnancy, waiting for that precious baby to arrive. These are all moments of waiting and anticipation. Now, those are all good things, and unfortunately, we just can't focus in on the good things when we're talking about waiting and anticipation, because there's also the difficult times when we're waiting for the diagnosis to come back from the doctor, when we're just waiting for that child to see what they're doing is actually hurting them and not helping them, when we're waiting for a spouse to repent, when we're waiting for the chronic pain to be over, when we're waiting for the Lord to finally show us the direction for our life when we're waiting for the pandemic to be done and for world peace to finally come. I could go on. I, I, at some point I had to stop making this list, but I think you get the picture. Our life is marked by waiting and anticipation. Now, some of these things we have to wait days and weeks for. Others we have to wait years and decades for. But there's finally a moment in time when, we, when that thing arrives and just consider how sweet that arrival is. Today, 
in our passage. We're going to get to look at the arrival of a long-anticipated person. We are going to be be at that, that point in the redemptive story when it's finally going to happen. The moment in time that everyone has been waiting for is upon them. And John the Baptist is going to finally say, it's here. Now, I just want to remind you of what we looked at last week. We looked at John's defense. This delegation of Pharisees, religious leaders came to John and was asking the question, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And John is put on defense of, no, I'm none of those things. Rather, I'm the forerunner. What we're going to see today, the next day in chronological history, because this passage, the rest of chapter one is looking at the first week of Jesus' ministry. The next day, John's not on the offense or on the defense he's on the offense he finally gets to go here's the one you've been waiting for so if you will read with me John 1 29 through 34 so the next day he John saw Jesus coming toward him and said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world this is he whom I said he comes after me a man who ranks before me because he was before me I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the son of God. Of God. I just want to set the scene for a moment. John go, has gone, has continued his regular operating procedure of baptizing these Jews coming down to him in the Jordan as we looked at last week. A baptism that looked like a proselyte baptism that would, that would cleanse Gentiles and bring them into the covenant family of Jews. But now he's baptizing Jews, indicating that even Jews need to be cleansed. He's gone about his business. He's kept doing that. And I can see him in the middle of baptizing somebody. And all of a sudden, Jesus crests the hill and starts walking towards him. And John gets excited. And as he's describing what's happening, when it says this word, behold, this is the most emphatic way of stating something. I can hear him go, behold, this is the one. This is the Lamb of God. And you you really can't even say it in that way. I mean, you kind of got to shout this sucker. I mean, you have to go, here he is. He's finally here. Now imagine waiting for something for let's say a year to arrive. And you're like, it's finally that day. Just imagine the excitement that a young child has on Christmas morning. They wake you up far earlier than you ever wanted to be woken up. They barely go to sleep the next night. And they only had to wait 365 days. Imagine the excitement of a bride on her wedding morning. Maybe she had to wait a longer and it was years in, in the dating and engagement process, but the excitement that that's there. Now, consider if you had to wait for a decade for something, for a child to come home or from a, 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 a long trip, the excitement there. We've been waiting for this announcement Not for a decade, not for a century, but from the beginning, from the beginning of time, from Genesis 3.15, that seed that was planted in the garden, we have been waiting for this announcement. 
And as we've looked at John as that last Old Testament prophet has the ability not to look towards Christ, but has the ability to look at Christ. He's not, he's not saying somebody is coming. He's going, this one is coming. And so in this proclamation, the wait is over. Behold, he's come. Now, how does he describe him? The Lamb of God. You know what's interesting? Is this phrase, the Lamb of God, is only, the only person who describes Jesus as the Lamb of God is John. And the only place that you see Jesus being described as the Lamb of God is in the Gospel of John and in Revelation, the two books that John wrote. And so, I want for a moment to unpack what does this term, what does this description mean? Why is John, outside of any other gospel writer, why is the first proclamation that we have Jesus here, why is the first time that Jesus is announced, he's described as the Lamb of God? Now, when you and I think of lambs, or if we were to describe somebody as a lamb, we think of him as something that's gentle and sweet and precious and innocent and adorable. Like if I were to say, they're a lamb, you're going to go, oh yeah, they're, they're that sweet individual. But if you were a first century Jew, the first thing that you would think of when you described somebody as a lamb was not that. See, in their minds, lambs equaled offerings. Lambs were slaughtered to appease God's wrath. Lambs were burnt offerings because of our sin. Lambs were offered on a daily basis so that we could fellowship with God. In their minds, lambs equaled ransoming and redeeming substitutes. When you saw a lamb, especially when you saw a spotless lamb, you would know in your mind one day eventually that lamb is going to die because I am a sinner. So when you saw these lambs, you saw them as substitutes. And so when John says, behold, the Lamb of God, you're not going to think, behold, this precious person. Rather, you're going to say, behold, here is the substitute for us. And John's also blowing their minds. The gospel, the, the, John the Baptist is blowing their minds because he's going, here is the substitute in flesh, the God-man who is our substitute, who is walking on this earth. I mean, when he says the Lamb of God, he's thinking back to Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac when God will provide a substitute. And we see this animal that was provided in place of Isaac. When he says the Lamb of God, he is thinking back to Exodus 12 when the Passover lamb was shed its blood and the blood went over the doorpost to protect the firstborn as that substitute. When he is saying the lamb of God, that he is thinking about the countless, the millions of lambs that have been killed on the altar because of our sin. And here he goes, behold, the lamb of God. When he says it, he wants us and them to think of sin. He wants them to think of ransom. He wants them to think of a substitute. But John takes this description and goes one step further. This is no ordinary Passover lamb. This is Jesus, the God-man, who is going to be our sacrifice to take away our sins. But look where his sacrifice is extended to. John the Baptist has continually baffled the 
religious leaders of the day. Because him baptizing Jews blew their mind. Because for Jews, they thought, we're good to go. We don't need to be baptized. We're cleansed. We are, we're sufficient. The Messiah is coming for us. You need to baptize those dirty Gentiles over here. And she, he starts baptizing these Gentiles. And they're going, wait a second. We don't need to be cleansed. He goes, no, you need to be cleansed just like everyone needs to be cleansed. So you need this baptism. Now notice where this sacrifice is extended to. The Jews thought our Messiah is coming for us. For me. Sorry, world, you're going to burn in hell. But that promise was only given to Israel, to the Jews. But the very first proclamation that John has about Jesus is that this Lamb of God is not going to be sacrificed just for Israel, just for the Hebrews, just for the religious people, but rather for the entire world who takes away the sin of the world. I'm sure when they heard this, they're like, wait, 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 wait. The world's been involved in this story? I thought this story was just about the Jews. I thought this story was just about us. But now you're saying he's come not just for us, but for everyone? John is saying, yes, this is a substitute for all. Here's what's interesting, though. The Jews understood that they needed this lamb. They understood that they needed this Messiah. Their history has been focused towards that. They understood we are waiting for somebody. They get Genesis 3.15. They get that Abraham was waiting for somebody and Moses was waiting for somebody and David was waiting for somebody and they were waiting for this Messiah. They knew that. And so they were anticipating that. They were waiting for that. But now what John is describing for us is that even the world who doesn't know that they need this Messiah can celebrate in the coming of the Messiah. What he's saying is Jesus is the problem or is the solution to the problem that the world doesn't even know that they need a solution for. So he's saying Jesus is here for all. I want to think for a moment again about that list of waiting. All the things I said was not unique to Christians. This world is one where we are living in anticipation and we are waiting. And a lot of the waiting is surrounded by we, are, we, are, we, we struggle to wait for, the, for a life that will be better. We str- we're, we're waiting for the time when we can stop struggling. You see, we set out so many goals in front of us that carry the hope that when this thing happens, life will be better. These things that we say, well, when this finally comes, it will be okay. Our hope is wrapped up in so many different things that we're waiting for. I thought about making a list of these things. I thought about just listing all of the things that, that the world, us included, say when this happens, life will be better. But I don't want to unnecessarily offend. And to be frank, as I started to write this down, I was like, nah, I'm going to get in trouble. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to just think for a moment about that thing that you're waiting for about that thing that you say once this happens life will be better once this achievement is made I'll be able to sleep better at night once this thing comes my life will be complete just think for a moment I know you have something 
because I have something. Those things that we, we give to ourselves, those lies that we tell ourselves that when this happens, I'm going to be better. Here's what I've noticed about people, including myself. I'm, I'm going to indict myself first, and then you guys, I'm, I'm going to drag you with us. We like to talk about those things. We like to spend time ruminating on those things. Our social media posts are filled with those things. Our conversations are filled with those things. Our, our bookshelves are filled with books that are written to accomplishing those things. We think once this happens, I'm going to be okay. Our world is going to be okay. We are going to be better. It's the solution to the problems that we think we have. Here's the thing. John is declaring that, behold, the solution to our greatest problem just arrived. When I think about that list of things that I struggle with, my separation from God isn't always the first one. And I say that as a believer, so I know I'm not separated from God. But so often our separation from God is way down the list. And so often when we think about the people around us, we think if they could just see this, their life would be better too. And the thing that we first point to, more often than not, is not our separation from God. It's, I don't want to start making lists. But it's other stuff that we're like, if they could just figure this out, if they could just, if they could just see this, their life would be better, like my life is better. But it's not. their separation from God. But here, John, standing on the banks of the Jordan, seeing Jesus crest the hill, declares to us, behold, the solution to our problem has finally arrived. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, how does he know this? How does he know that this is the Lamb of God? How does he know that this is the Messiah? How does he know that Jesus is the, is the solution to our problems? Because he was told by God and he saw it with his own two eyes. He gets to be the witness for us. Look how it continues. He goes, this is the one whom I said, he's hearkening back to the conversation that he just had yesterday with these uh, Pharisees, with this delegation of people. This is whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me before he is before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness and said, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a, like a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, who is that person? God, that is the most like underrated way of saying that. He on whom you see the Spirit ascend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The reason that John can look at Jesus and say this is the Lamb of God is because he saw with his own two eyes the Spirit descend and the important words are remain upon him. This, this word or this verb here, remain upon him, is a permanent action or result. That's what's going on in the Greek here. And it's really pointing to Israel or Isaiah 11.2. It says this, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The full and permanent possession of the spirit was taken to be the distinctive characteristic 
of the Messiah. And so the stress of the scene is that the, that the Spirit descended upon him and remained upon him. The Spirit was in him. So John here serves as the prophetic and apostolic witness to be able to point the visible occurrence and the invisible truth side by side and say, this is the Messiah. Now, it's interesting that John, the gospel writer John, doesn't cover this event in his gospel, doesn't cover the baptism of Jesus in his gospel. That's what John is referring to. And, and I, it's, it's actually, there's a, there's a few stories that I wish John, the gospel writer, would put in his gospel, mostly because I want to preach them because they're great passages. I'll get to those when I'm going through some other gospel. But I want to read for you today that scene, and I want to expound upon it because I think it's important for us to understand what's going on in the, in the event that John is referencing here in John 1. So if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 3. Now, just to set the chronology of and the timeline of what's going on here, we're going back in time a couple of days, probably somewhere around 45 days. Or it's, it had to be more than 40 days because what happens is John is baptizing in the Jordan. This is before any of John 1 happens. And Jesus comes to him and he says, I want to be baptized. And he baptizes. We're going to read that passage in a moment. Then immediately Jesus goes for the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. And we have that scene in Matthew 4. John also doesn't cover that. Well, then Jesus comes back from the 40 days and 40 nights being tempted in the wilderness and then immediately starts his ministry. That's where John 1 picks up. So he's going back 40-something, 45-ish days, and he's referencing the baptism. Now let's read what it says here. This is Matthew 3, verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I just want to talk about a couple elements that we see in this section here. One, we see the Trinity here. We see all of the members of the Godhead functioning, Jesus in the water, the dove, and the, the Holy Spirit in the dove, and the voice from God from heaven. But this is an important passage in the life and ministry of Jesus. And a question that is appropriate to ask and has been struggled through I've struggled with it. Other people have struggled with this. Why was Jesus baptized? Why did Jesus have to go through this? Because if John's baptism was for cleansing, Jesus, the sinless man, had nothing to be cleansed of. So Jesus, if there was one person on earth that did not have to be baptized, it was Jesus. But now Jesus is going out of his way, is going to be baptized. So the question is, why is Jesus being baptized? Well, he answers it for us to fulfill all righteousness. But how does that fulfill all righteousness? Jesus is going to be our substitute Jesus is our substitute. The Lamb of God is our substitute for our sin. 
And in order to be a substitute, Jesus has to do what is required of us. And what is required of sinners? To be cleansed. As we were looking in the Exodus, as, as we went through that series and we were looking at the, at the tabernacle, we, we demonstrated how each and every element was a shadow, a picture of Christ. Even the high priest itself was a shadow and picture of Christ because Christ is our great high priest. Think for a moment. Put yourself back in the tabernacle. When that high priest would enter the tabernacle, what was the very first thing they would do? They would go to the bronze basin and wash. Wash ceremonially saying, I need to be cleansed in order to come before the Lord. That was the first thing they did each and every time they entered the tabernacle. The first thing that Jesus does in his ministry is to ceremonially say, I need to be cleansed because if I'm going to be the great high priest, if I'm going to be the substitute, then I have to do what they need to do. So I'm going to be baptized because they need to be baptized. Jump back to John. John has been waiting for this moment, 129, for a long time, all of his life, in fact. This is why he was born. This is what he was called to do. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the first witness to say, this is the Lamb of God. He was the first person to say, our eternal hope is in Jesus. He says, I have seen him. This is back in 34. I have seen him and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. John, if you will, closes out a very significant chapter. And the chapter that he closes out is Hebrews 11. Now, he's not in Hebrews 11, but allow me to explain. Hebrews 11 is described as the... The, the, the hall of heroes. And it's described in, in Hebrews 12 as the great cloud of witnesses. Because from the very beginning, there have been individuals in Scripture that stand there in Scripture and are pointing us towards the Messiah. And their faith is a witness to us that one day somebody is coming who is going to make all things new. That's what happened in the Old Testament. If you read through Hebrews 11 this afternoon or sometime, what you're going to see is that Abraham pointed to Christ and Moses pointed to Christ and David pointed to Christ and Noah pointed to Christ and all the rest of these people, they pointed to Christ. They stood in time as a witness saying somebody is coming who's going to make all things new. But the great cloud of witnesses does not stop when the Old Testament is over, when the last Old Testament prophet prophesies, here he is. Because where John steps in and says, I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God, immediately others pick up that mantle as witness and carry it along. Because what we will see throughout this gospel, this gospel is filled with other witnesses who do just this. John, his job's done. He was the first witness. He was the forerunner. Now, the witnesses of Jesus 
are spread abroad. And so what happens is that the one witness, the one voice of John the Baptist is now exchanged for the many voices of every sinner who has been influenced and who has been touched by Jesus, who had seen him. This gospel is filled with that. Next week, we're going to see that Andrew, when he meets Jesus and he's called to be a disciple, runs to his brother, Simon Peter, and he's going to say the same thing. I have seen and I have experienced the Messiah. Come see him. I have seen and I bore witness that Jesus is the Son of God. The Samaritan woman, she interacts with Jesus and she runs back home and she goes, I have seen and I have experienced the Messiah. He's here. Come see him. The blind man, Mary and Martha, Lazarus, I could continue. But it doesn't stop with just the gospel. No. Paul is doing the same thing. I have seen and experienced Jesus. Follow him. James and Peter, they're all in this great cloud of witnesses pointing out, I have seen the solution to our greatest problem, sin. It's Jesus. Run to him. But it continues. There's Josephus and Origen and Origen and Augustine and Tertullian and Justin Martyr and Athanasius and Jerome and Polycarp, all of these church fathers who again picked up that mantle as witness and said, I have seen and I have experienced Jesus. Go to him. We could go to the Reformation. There's Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox and Theodore Beza and Thomas Kramer and the list goes on and on of people who are saying, I have seen and I have experienced Jesus. Run to him. The witnesses don't stop. John gets to be the first person who goes. He's, this is him. Go to him and a crowd comes in behind him. You, you are a witness. In being a child of God in the church are a witness to say, I have seen and I have experienced Jesus. Run to him. I'll talk about evangelism for a moment. This gospel John, above the other three Gospels, has been used for evangelism so much. It's, it's the Gospel, it's, it's the place in Scripture that if somebody, if somebody says, okay, how can I know about Jesus? They go to John. That's his thesis statement. I've written these things down so that you might know who Jesus is and might believe in him. And John demonstrates that Jesus is the solution to our specific problem of sin. All of these stories, he demonstrates for us that Jesus is the answer for the brokenness that's going on around us. We live in a world, we still live in a world, it was the world that John, the gospel writer, lived in, and it's the world that we live in that offers us so many different solutions to the chaos going on around us. So many things, again, think back to those solutions that we place our faith in. So many things that we say, if this will just change, or if that will just change, or if this thing can change, if we can just get to this point, life will be better. So many things and so many uh, uh, false gospels that we believe in saying, this is going to make life better. And here, John and the rest of church history and the great cloud of witnesses screams at us. It says, our ultimate solution is in Christ. So talking about evangelism, let me ask you a question. 
I, do, I normally don't do this, and I, I'm sorry, not sorry. When was the last time that you told somebody about the solution of Christ? When was the last time that you told somebody, I have seen and experienced the Messiah? You can come to him. When was the last time that you were the Samaritan woman who said, my life was a wreck and I received grace from Christ and you can receive that same grace too? When were you the blind man who said, my eyes were closed, but now my eyes have been opened and I can see? You can have sight as well. When were you Lazarus? When you said, I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I was in a grave and was hopeless, but Christ redeemed me, regenerated my, my soul and heart, gave me new heart, opened my eyes, gave me life, and I am standing here. And you also can be raised from the dead of your sins. When, when was the last time that you were one of those witnesses? Now, you might go, but we have a different witness. Because John got to go, this is it. He's the guy. The, well, the American version, the six foot two, blonde hair, blue eyed, white guy, which we just told our kids, that's not going to be the case because he's Jewish, so he's not going to have white. He's not going to be white. But, what, you know, they were looking at a person. But what are we looking at? What are we pointing to? How do we see and experience Christ? Or rather, how does the world around us see and experience Christ? Well, it's us. If you're a believer, it's you. How do they see and experience Christ? Well, they see it in you. Because what we say is, I want to show you what Christ has done in me. This is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is Matthew 5. You are a light. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Have you ever considered that the best way that we can be witnesses is we can walk around and go, I get it. I get the chaos that we're living in. I get the solutions that you're believing in. I get all of these false gospels that you're trusting in. But let me tell you about the true gospel and the Messiah that changed my life and that made me fundamentally different because I was once dead and now I'm alive. When was the last time you just told somebody that? I, I want it to sink in that we are witnesses for Jesus. And I want it to sink in that as believers, when somebody looks at us in Christ, they see Christ. Now, when I say that, the thing that happens inside of me is I go, oh dear, because I'm a dirtbag and I'm a sinner and I fail. You're going to see Christ in me? That's a shameful reality. Christ isn't going to want to have his name associated with me because of how unfaithful I am. And the answer to that is no, he actually does. Because when he came and he took on flesh, he took on our shame 
as well. I was talking to somebody about this this week. One of the most difficult realities of marriage, I say this in premarital counseling, but one of the most difficult realities of marriage is that you take on the shame of your spouse. It's for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and health. But it's also when you do something stupid, I'm going to stand by you. And when I do something stupid, I expect you to stand by me. We take on the shame of our partner. We're one flesh. And so, yeah, they might really mess up and we sit there and we go, okay, I'm going to stand by you even in that because that's love. That's what Jesus does for us. And he is not ashamed of you. He's not sitting in heaven grumbling with God about the stupidity that his children do. He's not sitting there rolling out his eyes and going like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that I have to be associated with Ryan. Look at the stupidity that he's doing. Can he not learn already? No, he's going, that's my child. That's my son. That's the person that I redeemed. That's the person that I came to take on flesh so that he might be saved. He's not ashamed of you and I. He accepts us. I share that because that gives me this boldness of saying, let me tell you about my Savior who saved me in spite of the train wreck that I am. And he's not going to leave me nor forsake me. As we turn our attention towards communion today, I know that when I'm ending talking about us being a witness towards God, and that's difficult because we are sinners. But I want to just give you grace and give you hope at the end. The first witness to the person of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, was an imperfect witness. John's job as witness is done here. We are moving on from John. But John's going to come back up in this gospel. And you want to know when John's going to come back up? It's going to be in chapter 3. When John's doubting whether Jesus is actually the Messiah. And it's you're like, how can that happen? How can you be so confident? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's going to send his disciples to Jesus and go, are you actually the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world? You're like, you, you're so confident. Days ago, what happened? And I think that that just points to the fact that as fickle people, we need grace. And we need to be reminded on a daily basis of who Jesus is. As we approach the communion table today, it's a time that we can be reminded of the hope that we have. When we can come and we can see and we can bear witness and we can trust that Jesus is our only hope. And the elements itself of, of partaking of it remind me of Psalm 34. Barrett read the second half of that psalm, but I want to read the first half today because it has a fantastic reminder for us. Here's what it says. 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, he answered me, and 
delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. His, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him, saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You may have walked in here today struggling, looking for hope, looking for an answer when life was going to be better. If you're a believer, you're about to partake in communion and experience with your body, with your mind, with your soul. Be reminded that God is this, Christ is the solution to the problem that you, the ultimate problem that you have. Be reminded that he, God's not going to look at your body or your blood or your life or your goodness. He's looking to Christ. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, if this is new for you, if, if, if you're still struggling and, and, and looking for that hope, I, I would ask that you just let these elements pass you by because we don't take them to save us. We take them so that we can be reminded of the Savior that we have. And then I would encourage you after the service, come find me. I'd love to share the gospel with you once again and, and declare to you how you can have hope in Christ. Let's pray and we can take this together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we can stand here today and not have to evaluate the works of our own hands, not have to look at what we've done, not even have to say, well, I lived a faithful week, so you're good with me. Thank you that we can lay all of that aside and we can look to you and you alone, knowing that you were our perfect substitute. Thank you that we have that hope. In your name, amen.